Welcome to Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karras. Karis on Crime is a place to explore criminal justice issues and cases in the news. And as always, I welcome your feedback, your questions and your ideas. You can post them in the forum on Karis on Crime if you're a member or on social media. My Twitter handle is at Beth Karras and my Facebook page is my name, Beth Karras. Today, I'm delighted to speak again to forensic analyst Joseph Scott Morgan. Joseph is the author of a memoir, Blood Beneath My Feet, The Journey of a Southern Death Investigator, for which he received Georgia's Author of the Year Award in 2013. He was a medical legal investigator, that is, a death investigator, with the New Orleans Coroner's Office and then with the Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office in Georgia for about 20 years in all. He's currently on the faculty of Jacksonville State University Center for Applied Forensics. It's located west of Atlanta, just over the Alabama border. Now, I reached out to Joseph to talk about the death of 24-year-old Ryan Singleton in 2013. I first learned about Ryan's death when I met some of his friends at CrimeCon in Indianapolis in early June 2017, just a few weeks ago as we are now speaking. Ryan was a former model and an aspiring actor. He was originally from Atlanta, though he had ties to New York. And in early July 2013, he flew to Los Angeles for a vacation. He rented a car and he drove to Las Vegas for a couple of days. And then driving back from Vegas to Los Angeles, his car broke down. Now, law enforcement, they picked him up because he's on the side of the road, right? They picked him up and drove him to like an AM, PM gas station convenience store where he called a friend to come pick him up, a friend in Los Angeles. So the friend had a three-hour drive. But that's the last time he was seen. The friend arrived from Los Angeles and couldn't find Ryan. And the next day, which was July 10th, 2013, he filed a missing person report. Now, 74 days 74 days after that report was filed, Ryan's body was found by some joggers in Baker, California. That's San Bernardino County. That's Death Valley. And I want to talk to you, Joseph, about the condition of Ryan Singleton's body. His cause and manner of death have been ruled undetermined. And Ryan's mother, Iris Flowers, who's from Atlanta, and Ryan's spouse are suspicious of foul play. So welcome again, Joseph, and uh, let's talk about Ryan Singleton's body. You've seen the autopsy report. Yeah, yeah, I have, Beth. And again, thank you for uh, for having me on and uh, uh, greetings to all of your fans and listeners. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I've had a chance to review the autopsy report and the examination that was conducted on um, on all that remained of of Ryan's uh, Ryan's body. And to be honest with you, there there wasn't a lot. Uh, he had been down for. For some time, as you had pointed out, in arguably probably the most hostile environment, environmentally hostile environment in North America. Uh, uh, listeners have never been to Death Valley. Uh, it's it's a, a rude rude awakening uh, to the senses when you get there. It has beauty, but it also is a very inhospitable location. The time of year he was found, you know, average temps you know, can can run 115, 117 per day. Um, very dry, very, very hot. Uh, and not much survives out there, not much lives out there. Uh, little town that he was found in, to give you some, to orient the folks that are listening uh, uh, to how uh, hostile this location is, the town, the location actually has one of the largest 
physical thermometers in the United States, and it's kind of on the side of the road there, and it gives you an indication of people passing by as to how hot it is. So that's, that's kind of that's kind of their landmark, you know, in this little town, which you know has probably got less than four hundred people there. That's Baker, California. Yeah, right, right. All yeah. right. Well, okay. So Ryan didn't have a lot of organs in his body. Yes, but other parts of his body were intact, which leads those who believe there's foul play that he may have been killed for his organs, organ harvesting yeah. on the black market. Uh-huh. Now uh-huh. he was indeed missing several organs, right? Right, uh, yeah. But what does that tell you? Well, uh, let's keep in mind that, you know, um, like I said, this is this is essentially a, a wilderness area that, that you know, his car broke down in. You've got this small little town that's uh, just essentially a bump in a road um, that's out there in this place. Uh, there is no natural cover, uh, and when I... What I mean by that is uh, there, you know, we think of, you know, on the East Coast and down here in the South, you know, we think of big oak trees and hardwoods and that sort of thing that you can at least seek shade and cover in. There's nothing like that there. It's low-growth scrub, and it's uh, uh, very, you know, white, alkaline soil that's out there. Just It's so hot. Um, and some of the creatures that are out there, uh, you know, let's face it, you know, one of the world's uh, uh, largest birds, uh, birds of Karen and the California condor, they call that area home, uh, and also roving packs of coyotes. Now, one of the things that if you were looking to harvest organs, uh, that, you know, there's all kinds of uh, tales that are out there about people that wake up, you know, and they're on a park bench in Central Park and they're missing a kidney and, you know, all these stories that, that run around the Internet. One of the things that you would look for if someone had gone through the trouble to, har- to harvest an organ is that the individual would have had to have been prepped, and you can't kill the person and harvest their organs because the organs become non-viable at that point. And so you would have to have a method to maintain viability of the organs, that is, have them on life support, harvest them one by one so that the heart continues to beat, uh, and you take these out. In the examination of what what remained of of uh, of Ryan's body, there were no clean margins relative to the torn skin and tissue that he had remaining on his body. Um, he's missing a couple of ribs, uh, which was kind of strange. The rest of his rib cage was intact. His head is completely intact with the exception that his eyes are gone, um, which, you know, would give people pause. But let's, let's understand that if you have wild animals that are looking to feast, they're seeking sources of protein. Um, the abdominal cavity appears to have been literally, you know, uh, entered um, through the abdominal uh, muscles. If you'll put your hand just slightly above your navel, That'll give you an indication as the area that the soft the soft area where animals would go into to feast, and uh, the interior of his body was essentially cleaned out of of all of its organs. As a matter of fact, the only thing the only organ that they really found remaining in Ryan's body was a small semblance of his brain, from which they tried to uh, 
tried to draw some toxicology from, and I think that, I don't know this for a fact, but more than likely what they did was take that portion of the brain that was left, put it in a centrifuge, and spin it down and liquefy it, and they drew off samples to do toxicology. But there are no clean margins uh, on the on the on what remains of the tissue. And if you're doing organ harvestation, one of the things that you're going to look for is just like when we get surgery at a hospital, um, if you're going to harvest organs, there have to be clean incisions that would be an indication that high-end tools would be used. There's nothing like that. You've got kind of a tearing away that's taking place here. And we've heard these stories before. I think probably one of the stories that comes to mind that that I covered on HLN extensively a few years ago was the Kendrick Johnson case. Uh, where Kendrick's remains were, uh, you know, they had finally made it to the state medical examiner's office. They had done an autopsy on him. And then they were going to exhume his body and do an autopsy, a uh, second autopsy, when they went to open his body. The body cavity was stuffed with newspapers. Well, that's common practice uh, among funeral home directors. That young man's body was severely decomposed. Uh, the The medical examiner's office in Georgia had, uh, eviscerated the body and had not returned the organs to the, bo- to the, bo- to the body. So a big made out of that media uh, relative to that. In this particular case, in Ryan's case, and I think that it's really sad because it's impacted the family now, whoever contacted them, and I don't know if it was the medical examiner or in California's case, they have, they have a county coroner who also is the sheriff. Um, I don't know if those individuals contacted him or another investigative agency, but they told the mother at that time, oh, by the way, your son's organs are all missing. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering how they got around to that in a conversation, because in my years of working at a medical examiner's office, I never really got that graphic in speaking to a family, and they've obviously put the family back on their heels and alerted them. And I think that it's, it's uh, questionable um, as to... The, uh, the approach that they took to deal with this family. Now you've got all kinds of things floating around the Internet. All anybody has to do is put Ryan's name into a search engine in the, in the Internet and say organ harvestation. You'll get all kinds of people that are talking about this um, and stating that you know his organs were, in fact, harvested. And it really, uh, it, it's really quite troubling. And, you know, the reality is this. Um, unless they have an eyewitness that comes forward, Beth, in this case, there is little or no physical evidence that remains that would give you an indication as to cause and manner of death. And that's why, at this point, it has been left as undetermined in both on both counts. It is really a mystery, though, how he died, because he was presumably in a convenience store that was, or at a gas station that I, I'm assuming was open, um... Maybe not. I don't have uh, all the details. I think that it was, actually. I think that it was. And uh, there's no, I, I don't know, uh, you see, that's the big mystery as well. I'm, I'm questioning the police work here uh, as far as investigating. And granted, he's a grown man. He can, you know, if he hitched ride with the police officers, I don't know that it really, you know, that they were really obligated to investigate further. He apparently was not behaving in an erratic manner. You know, it was just, look, my car's broken down, it's a hostile environment, take me to the gas station. And I think that that's probably what happened. The big question, though, isn't it, you know, um, 
what happened after that. Because, you know, at, at the end, I think, and I might be incorrect, but if I remember correctly, I think his body was only like three or 400 yards away from that gas station when he was found. It's not like he was in a, you know, the town itself is isolated. All right, let's put this in context. The town itself is very isolated, Beth, but his body was not found in isolation, like up in some rocks somewhere. It was out in kind of low scrub, open area. And for folks that are listening at home, it's very simple. If you'll go to Google Maps and search this little town out, you can see the satellite shots, and it'll really, it really kind of smacks you in the face when you see how desolate this area is. The only thing that's there are these man-made structures and a low-growth scrub, and that's it. It's, it's, it's startling to take a look at. There are some who believe that regardless of how he died, he was placed where he was found because it was not until September 21st, 22nd that he was found. Right, right. Yep. And how is it possible that he was out there in you know in the middle of the summer so close to the gas station and not found? And these these joggers found him. I mean, well, he had clothes on. I saw a photo of him. He was um like face down. That's what his friends mm-hmm. had on display at CrimeCon. Right, right. Yeah. He was clothed. And his body had had remained clothed and you know, again, that goes back to this idea of organ harvesting. You know, if you're generally with organ harvesting, if you're truly doing it. It's not some kind of weird ritualistic thing. It would seem to me that the body would be stripped of all clothing. It would be cleaned up. Um, and if you're going to dump the body, why would you go to the trouble of redressing the body, uh, I think, and, uh, and, and placing the body in that location? Another curious thing is that when they did the toxicology screen, they got a false positive, if I'm not mistaken, for some form of of amphetamine on board. And that means that either it is there or it isn't there. They didn't have enough of a sample. Now, if we take that logic and extend it out, if he did have some kind of foreign substance that he ingested um, and couple that with this intense heat, if he had some type of drug on board, and I don't know that he necessarily did, and I don't know that we ever will, um, did he become uh, disoriented? and wander off into this area and just succumb to dehydration out there and didn't wander back. I mean, it, um, it wasn't uh, a long but, time. Just, I mean, he just had three hours he had to wait for his friend. It's not that long. Right. I just, it's, and then he wasn't there. He just vanishes. And that's the great mystery, isn't it? You know, where, where could he have gone? Um, and you would think that the, if the police had done a thorough investigation at that time, um, and the friend had been on their game as far as pulling up to the store, which I think is one of the few businesses there. Hey, where is my friend? Where is my friend? He said he was here. He's not here. His car is still out here. I want some answers answers to this. Then, you know, the store workers would have been able to say, yeah, he was here, but we saw him wander off in this direction. I haven't heard of anything like that that's come to the surface, unless some new information has been developed. I have not read anything about that. I don't know what the police investigation has been, um, but I was thinking the same thing. What what does the worker at the uh, gas station have to say about this? Now, he was a, uh, Ryan Singleton was a good-looking young man, and he was 6'4", so right. really tall. So he's not like a yep. small person who uh, may not be seen. I mean, so he, he's a big man. Yes, he's a big man, well-muscled. He looks like he's in... At least the surface appearance would appear that he's in 
you know, very good physical condition. I mean, let's face it, the guy wanted to be an actor, and I think that he had worked as a model. So he probably took care of himself, uh, at least the imagery that I've seen of him. So, you know, that gives us pause. And, you know, what what actually is beneath the surface here? You know, what's happened? And unfortunately, at the end of the day, from a forensic standpoint, we don't we don't have much to go on mm-hmm. because the remains... Um, the remains were so <clears throat> so affected by by the environmental conditions and whatever type of post mortem trauma that it, the remains had to endure um, out there in this location, you and know, that he was he was found in such a in such an area that when he was it, he wound up there, why would they choose that specific location instead of a more secluded location in order to dump his remains, if, that, if that's what happened? It's time for a break. You're listening to Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karras. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karras. I'm speaking with Joseph Scott Morgan, a former death investigator who knows a lot about bodies at death and what it tells you about the cause and manner of death. We're talking about Ryan Singleton, who was found deceased 74 days after he was reported missing in 2013. He was found in September in Baker, California. This reminds me when you talk about the environmental um, factors, you know, uh, affecting his, his body and the changes. Uh, a case I covered in 2002 in San Diego, it was the kidnapping and murder of a little girl named Danielle Van Dam by her neighbor. She was kidnapped out of her bed in the night, seven-year-old. And the neighbor um, probably raped her, but her body was too decomposed by the time it was found only three and a half weeks later to actually charge him with rape. But he was charged with the kidnapping and the murder. He's now on death row in, in San Quentin in California. But... Um, when Danielle Van Dam was found in the desert by s- some searchers, three and a half weeks had gone by. Not a lot of time. Right. But she was in a more advanced state of decomposition because of the Santa. It was desert, and it was a mm-hmm. Santa Ana winds had affected it. So um, had affected the rate of decomposition, I guess. I mean, that's dry but hot. Yes, air. it is. And. Uh, and heat is heat. I don't, you know, all of your friends, if you've never been to the desert before in your life, you know, will always say, oh, you'll enjoy the heat out there. It's a dry heat. Well, no, I was actually at Fort Huachuca in the Army many, many years ago when dinosaurs roamed the earth. And it was, um, it was hot. <laughs> and I'm from the South, and it was hot by my standards. Here's what I teach my students at university. Uh, when we're talking about decompositional rates, and this is something I focus on quite a bit in 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 academia, is that um, just like every experiment that we conduct in a chemistry lab, say for instance in 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 high school, um, uh, most things begin, uh, many things begin uh, with heat, don't they? You know, a, a Bunsen burner or an alcohol burner or something like that. Uh, heat what it does is it does, in fact, accelerate things. So a body that you would have, say, for instance, in the swamps in South Louisiana or Florida or even in the desert will be at an, it will decompose at an accelerated rate as a result of increased heat, the, environmental, the ambient environmental temperature 
Um, and we can get into other factors as well, uh, like barometric pressure, uh, relative humidity and everything, but heat is the key, is it not? As opposed to, I've, I've got good friends of mine that are were state investigators uh, in, in Minnesota, for instance, um, and uh, worked homicides up on the Canadian-Minnesota uh, state border that had occurred in October where the bodies were dumped right at first first frost and those bodies froze and were not recovered until spring. And Beth, those bodies in some of those cases are almost completely intact uh, with no no signs of, uh, or very few signs of decomposition whatsoever. So heat in and of itself is a, uh, is a major factor in the, the variety of, of, of changes that we see in these bodies. And that's why I take exception to people that think that um, that there is one formula in investigating any kind of death, because you have to factor in what type of environment are we on, um, how has the weather varied over this period of time, um, and um, uh, other factors as well as things like animal activity. You know the the flora and the fauna that that occupy that that particular sphere. You know what what may have. Um, even sped this thing up further or, or quicker. And in trying to narrow the time of death, which yes. can be impossible, the yes. longer out, you look at uh, entomology, right? Is that right, the right. bug? Yep. The bugs? Yes. Yeah, you do. And um, it, it's interesting because, uh, you know, if you study entomology, and I, I'm, I'm not an entomologist by trade, uh, but if you, if you listen to entomologists, uh, um, and listen to what they have to say. You know, they'll they'll talk about um, uh, insects living in this this interesting little society, and isn't that fascinating? They'll talk about, you know, like uh, blowflies will not show up when certain other types of insects are present, for instance. And um, and uh, you'll you'll go through this whole cycle of where you'll see the the uh, the flies come in and lay eggs, and and then those will uh, those larval will, produce, you know, that you'll have maggots that will appear, and then they'll shed their husk, and then they'll go away, and there'll be another generation. You'll have things like dung beetles that show up, and all these other things that kind of come along, and they come along in a very specific order. But we're way, way down range when we get to entomology, and the, the further out you go on your linear timeline relative to things like entomology, uh, the blunter your instrument is when it comes to trying to to uh, pin down an exact time of death. You see, it, that golden period of time that we have in those first 36 hours after death, that's the period of time where we can look at decompositional changes in the short term, things like rigor mortis and liver mortis and algor mortis. They're really going to put a fine point on things, but man, I tell you, when you start to jump out beyond that, um, it becomes progressively more difficult to tie things back scientifically and try to paint a very clear picture. If you're talking about a guy that's been missing now in excess of 30 days, uh, how much more uh, is this going to be difficult to tie the, to tie this back, particularly in this very harsh environment? I want to get back to asking you a couple questions about just sort of organ donation, transplantation, harvesting. But yeah. something you said uh, triggered another question. When, when we die, yes. is it... Is the, uh, whatever, say, chemicals may be in our system, if we have taken a drug or had a drink, does it freeze at that point? There's a, it's like, takes a snapshot, it's frozen, there's no more breakdown metabolizing, right? Uh, no, 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 that's, that's not the case. It's, we're not, 
from a metabolic standpoint, um, if we're talking about things like cellular respiration, I'll get off into into the weeds um, a little bit here, but there's a cycle that we work on as we're alive, and it's cellular respiration, and many of the people listening will have heard of this, and it's, it's, there's a cycle that's involved that's called the Krebs cycle, and it, it creates these little balls of energy, and it, it helps us, it helps our system to function. That breaks down, okay, and it's no longer working. Now what you're dealing with is enzymic activity after death, and those little enzymes that are floating around and they begin uh, the process of decomposition, they're, they're kind of, they're compromising those things that are within us. So, for instance, if you're where we would draw heart blood, for instance, where at, at autopsy where we can get blood directly out of the aorta when we go into the body, that's a great source of information for us as far as doing a drug panel. But that body cannot be too far gone because the further gone it is, that uh, those parameters that we look at relative to uh, uh, the the quantitative amounts uh, that we get back on opioids and you know benzos and even cannabis and all those sorts of things, alcohol in particular, uh, those those parameters get broader and broader and broader, till at one point in time where it's almost completely unreliable. So we have to fall back. One of the things that we'd look at at that point in time is getting vitreous fluid. And for those that don't know, vitreous fluid is the fluid that is within the eyeball. And it's almost, and it's very nonspecific, but it's, it's more, that's more of a frozen in time event. And you look at autopsy reports with toxicology, they'll put a more of an emphasis many times on, on the vitreous content relative to decomposed bodies because it's contained within the eyeball. But it's more like I don't know, it's analogous to someone cutting a tree in half and looking at the rings on the tree, and you can see where there was a drought, where there was a lot of uh, rain that might have fallen in a particular year. It's going to be very, very broad. Uh, and, of course, the further you go out, the more worthless it becomes over a period of time. So if um, so, it's actually best to do an autopsy regardless of the state of the body. Say, say it's a suspicious death, but you need to do the autopsy quickly because things continue to break down. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, de- decomposition never stops. Even decomposition, and people at home can keep this in mind and just kind of put this back in the back of your mind. Decomposition never actually stops. It's slowed down. Uh, cold will slow it down, but it will not stop it. It's it's still it's the natural of order things, Beth. You know it's it's going to continue to progress. Now you can slow it greatly uh, by uh, by making the body as cold as you possibly can within reason. You know um, I've I've done I remember many years ago when I was first starting my career out and we were doing an autopsy uh, on a guy that came in on a Liberian registered uh, uh, tanker ship into New Orleans and there was a uh, the the thing was crewed by a Korean Korean crew, and the uh, the cook's mate uh, got crossways of the of the cook, and the cook hit him with a, a meat cleaver over a hundred times and killed this guy. Well, they were coming around um, the whatever it is the is it the Strait of Magellan around you know in 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 South America. They put this guy's body into their super duper deep freeze. And they didn't put in port until they got to New Orleans. That's a long ways. Well, we got this guy in to do the autopsy on him, and it literally took us, I think it was three days. His body had to be thawed 
before we could actually put cold steel to him. It, wow. it, it, it was that frozen. But still, his body in that condition is still decomposing. You've just slowed it down greatly. I just remember talking to a doctor who was helping me understand Michael Jackson's autopsy. And, of course, he had a number of drugs in him, but it was uh, mainly there was the propofol that was uh, you know, a whole bunch of it at once, and he stopped breathing, and the doctor wasn't in the room right to... Uh, to help him breathe for himself, so he dies. Right, right. And there was blood taken from Michael Jackson at the hospital and then at autopsy the next day, and the yeah. levels of propofol in his blood were two different amounts. Uh-huh. And this doctor had said to me, wow, this is a study of one, but, uh, you know, I thought that, you know, it didn't break down anymore after you died, and actually it continues to break down, the propofol. Right, and um, to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not, I've never had really any exposure to studying uh, this drug relative to that. I don't know, and I would assume that half-life on, on certain drugs is going to vary. Uh, but again, that should be on a sliding scale, where if it is, if it is degrading uh, over a short period of time, we have all kinds of texts and references that we can go to and see what, what the postmortem effects are. On that particular drug, does it begin to bleed off at a, over over a marked period of time where you can tell that it's not the same as it was, say, 24 hours, even though it is a postmortem event? You would think that it would change over that period of time. So, you know, some of these drugs can be very, very fragile. They're, some of these things are very, um, see how can uh, re- very robust. Okay, uh, if you start to get into things like um, cocaine metabolite, it tends to be very robust. Uh, opiates, they tend to be robust. They're not real fragile. So you can get a level for these if the body has been appropriately stored and not racing toward decomposition. Some of these more complex drugs, I would imagine, are more fragile. Okay, so thank you for that. And let me go back to um, the uh, organ transplants and stuff. So I did a little bit of research, and there's a website called the United Network for Organ Sharing, and it says that the most common organs that are transplanted are liver, kidney, pancreas, heart, lung, intestine, and then you can get, uh, it says, the vascularized composite allografts, VCA, such as face and hand transplantation. So, I mean, the... If Ryan Singleton had no organs in him, that means not only the list that I just, uh, not the not the face or hand, but the liver, kidney, pancreas, heart, lung, intestine, that's gone. But also there's more organs. There's a gallbladder, there's a spleen, there's more, right? So everything yeah. was gone yeah. for him. Right, yeah. And, you know, uh, people do take bowel, but it's it's more rare. And, you know, one of the greatest privileges I've ever had uh, a, a real upside to working uh, at a medical examiner and coroner's office is working with um, transplant teams, you know, because they have to get our permission. If a person's involved in a, tra- a traumatic event, they have to get our permission before they can harvest the organs because you can't compromise the case if it's going to move forward as a criminal matter, all right? And so they have to give you a pathology report. And I actually got to go and be present in surgical suite a couple of times when they were actually removing the organs. But these these surgeries are so complex. Um, even this person is brain dead, for instance. Uh, I remember a young man that was on a, in a motorcycle accident, and he was essentially brain dead. But, uh, you know, I'm in the surgical suite with the physician that's there, and they're harvesting this young man's, both of his kidneys and his liver. Um, 
and I held his beating heart in my hand. Mm. Uh, it's very delicate. The viscera uh, is very delicate. They tie everything off like they would in a normal surgery because you have to keep these organs viable. That's why they're in such a rush to do this, and it is like clockwork. I mean, this is not something that is done... Um, in in a situation where it's kind of, you know, well, I think we'll go steal somebody's kidneys or steal somebody's liver or, you know, it would it's it takes such a team of people to bring this thing together to specifically do what has to be done to make these organs viable. Um and so it's it's uh, highly technical expertise uh that people have to possess in order to do that. And not just that, they have to have the facility in order to be able to accomplish this task. Right. You can have the most well-trained person in the world, but if they don't have all of the life support um, equipment that's required, the surgical technology that's required, anesthesiology, all those things that come along with this, um, they're, they're going to be in dire straits. So there has been a lot of reporting, though, about organ harvesting in China, the killing of, say, members of the Falun Gong a religious you know, group and and others okay. uh, for their organs at a huge profit, and you know China has been criticized for you know human rights violations because of that. This, right, right. But is there in the United States a black market for organs? Not to the best of my knowledge. I'd heard rumors of it in Latin America at some point in time, but in in all of my experience and and trust me, you know. I haven't investigated every single death that's occurred in America, all right? So I can't speak to every one of those deaths, but I know in my small sphere, my little slice of the pie, I have, to the best of my knowledge, never worked a case involving illegal harvestation of organs. But I have worked many cases where organs have been legally harvested, and then we wound up doing the autopsy after the fact. And I've observed um, those surgical interventions that had to take place in order to uh, to remove those organs, and uh, I've just I've never seen anything as far as illegal harvestation goes. All right, well, that kind of covers everything I wanted to ask you about Ryan Singleton and organ harvesting. But is there anything that I that you want to add that I haven't uh, asked you? No, I think that that probably the biggest thing for me is that. Um, I, and what I would want families or people in the general public to, to keep in mind is that families are very, very fragile, you know, anytime they lo- lose a loved one. And uh, we live in such a callous world now with the Internet and all these sorts of things that, uh, that are out there. And, I, I, you know, my heart just absolutely breaks for Ron's family. Um, and I, I, I don't – I think that it's very important that we try to – understand what happened to Ryan um, and not um, not kind of chase these these phantoms that are out there relative to organ harvestation and things like that, that we refocus on what actually happened to Ryan the man. Um, and those are those are those are real critical questions. I think that probably what needs to be revisited is um, what exactly did the authorities do? You know, I think that that needs to be examined. When they made that initial contact with him, that needs to be gone over with a fine-tooth comb, track those people down, uh, have them interviewed, and have everybody, all of the principals that were involved at this little gas station uh, that were there uh, in this little town, and really uh, turn this thing up. Uh, I, I think that it, it might be worth for the state AG to get involved in this in California 
and take a look at this, uh, maybe from an unbiased perspective, um, and uh, maybe they can come to uh, to some conclusion as to what happened to Ryan. But let's always keep his family in mind and uh, and uh, and uh, and be sensitive to you know to to what what's going on with them. Um, when I first got introduced to this case, I was just absolutely shocked at some of the things I came across on the internet relative to. Uh, to these people that had put these rumors out there. And I, I, I think that it begs the question, you know, how much have they been affected by this information that has come into them? Well, I want to thank you again, Joseph Scott Morgan, for another enlightening educational discussion. You're the best. Oh, come on now. <laughs> You're the best, Beth. Thank you so much. You're yeah. so kind. And, uh, and all the best to your audience. I wish you, wish you all, uh, all, all a great day. And uh, let's talk again real soon. Great. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this latest episode of Kerosene Crime. I welcome your feedback. Send me your questions, your ideas. Post them on social media. My Twitter handle is at Beth Karras, and my Facebook page is Beth Karras. And subscribe to Kerosene Crime on iTunes, Stitcher, or Acast.com. Until the next time, be well.